Good morning. As we turn our attention to God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with joy-filled reverence and sober humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin prepares our hearts and minds to do that. Let's read it together. All people are like grass. All their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 46. In the Blue Pew Bible, it can be found on page 486. Again, the text is Psalm 46, found on page 486 of the Pew Bibles. Hear now the word of the Lord taken from the book of Psalms. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Thank you, Emily. Let's, uh, before uh, jumping into God's word this morning, let's take a few minutes to, to pray to him. Heavenly Father, this morning, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit to change us from the inside out. Conform us to the likeness of your son who reigns over all, the one who indeed is worthy of all, of all honor and glory and praise and dominion and wisdom and strength. Father, we pray that he would be magnified this morning, that we might know you, Father. So through the power of your spirit, Father, please be present to give comfort, to give conviction, to equip us to be your servants, to be your sons and daughters. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty and merciful name. Amen. Sarah and I were, uh, this is some years ago, Sarah and I were... um, living in Florida at the time, and uh, we, were, uh, we were excited to be asked by Sarah's parents to join them in Philadelphia. Uh, Sarah's dad was graduating um, uh, from, from a degree program that he'd been working on for a number of years, and so we decided to join them. In fact, I wanted to say we might have flown up there as a surprise, um, and uh, we, were having, we were excited. We got jumped on the plane. It was just me and Sarah at the time. It was before all our kids, and uh, we jumped on the plane, and we were taking off, and we are heading to Philly. And, uh, and we're just, I was probably reading, Sarah was, I don't know what she was doing, but we're just kind of doing our thing. When the next thing we knew, the airplane uh, was in this immediate spin down. And suddenly the, 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 uh, the, a, uh, an alarm went off 
And um, we're thinking, what, what in the world's going on? And the pilot, the captain of the, air, of the aircraft, got on the, you know, the intercom or whatever and said that there was a potential fire on board. And we, we, were, we were trying to land as soon as possible. <laughs> and so you went from just thinking, hey, everything's fine, to suddenly realizing, what is about to happen? Is this, is this it? And, and sure enough, you know, it, it was you know, circling down. I've never seen been an air, airline like that, uh, be at an angle that was so steep, and you're just going in this sort of uh, what feels like a graveyard spin. You're going straight down. And he was able to locate a nearby airport. And we landed immediately. And we landed, and as we were landing, we could see all the fire trucks uh, you know, racing out to, uh, to meet us. And thankfully, it was a malfunction of some sort, and there was no actual real fire on the airplane, and we, we were all uh, 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 deplaned as quickly as possible. But it was this, this, this reminder of, I don't know if you've ever had moments like that when you've been flying, when something, let's like, say, the turbulence hits. And you go from this moment of thinking, wow, I'm, I'm in control, I'm doing my thing. I'm getting from point A to point B, and I'm whatever it is, I'm in, I'm in control of my world, to realizing that you're going 500-some miles per hour through the air at 30,000 feet, <laughs> right? And I don't know if you've ever had someone say to you, hey, have a safe flight. And you kind of stop, and you think, you know, I, I have absolutely no control whether or not I have a safe flight or not. Be careful, Right? Have a safe flight, have a safe journey, safe trip. And you're realizing, you know what? I have almost no control over this situation. You know, it's, it's an important question to ask in life. Because I don't know about you, but I can, go through, I can go on in life, throughout life, thinking that I really do have a, a meaningful measure of control. And then life hits in some of the most unexpected of ways. And it, and it, and it can ask us to, to, to really, I mean, make, it, make us ask really important questions. Like, am I really in control? Have I ever been in control? Will I ever be in control? And if I'm not, is anybody else? Is there someone in control? Yes. Uh, excellent. I love it. Someone's listening. I love it. Yes, someone is. This is true. Amen and hallelujah. Right? And if so, are, are they good? Are they, are they really good? I mean, in the moment, you kind of, again, the turbulence hits, and the plane starts shaking, the pilot comes on, or the flight attendant comes on, and he asks you to put your seatbelts on, and you kind of wonder, you know, it's the first time you've even thought, oh yeah, there's a pilot on this plane, and are they any good? <laughs> do they know what they're doing? Is someone, and how much control do they really have themselves? Are they up there just kind of doing the best they can, hoping this, you know, hoping this thing works out? Is, do they have the wisdom and the strength and the, 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 the influence, the power they need? And so am I in control? If not, is anybody else in control? And if so, are they good? And if so, how can I be on their team? <laughs> right? How can, I, how can I somehow take advantage of that? How can I be on the right side? Right? Now, this, this is important because it actually exposes a way that we think in our modern Western world in a way that's extremely different from the ancient world. 
In, in our world, we love the idea of autonomy, of independence. In fact, it's very common. I'll, I'll have parents say to me, I'm, I'm raising my children so that they will be independent, that they will be self yeah, self-reliance, self-control. So they'll, they'll be able to take care of self. They can do their own thing. And they can be autonomous. And that's a huge value of ours, to be free, to be liberated, to be on our own. In the ancient world, that was the, one of the furthest things from their minds. Do you know why? Because every day of the li- their lives, they were confronted with the fact of how little control they actually had. And so they didn't want to be independent they wanted to be dependent on the right person. Does that make sense? They wanted to figure out who's in control and how do I get on their team. And so that's what, it, for them, being a servant or being a slave or being something, that was all what it was all about. It was about being the servant of the right person. Now, as we jump into Psalm, uh, Psalm 46 here, Psalm 46 is this, this beautiful, this beautiful um, uh, a psalm of confidence, or even of defiance. And before we jump into that, I want to just briefly summarize. This is our, this is our final sermon in our series on, on God as our, as our refuge. I want to just summarize very briefly three aspects of what we call a theology of refuge. Okay, so first, a theology of refuge is, is about a vulnerable humanity. If you look at the Psalms of Refuge in the Bible, again and again, humanity is, is shown not for all its capacity, for all its strength, for all its ability. Rather, in these Psalms, humanity is shown for all its frailty, for all its vulnerability. It's this incredibly realistic presentation of humanity that sees through the sense of, of modern self-reliance. In fact, just turn with me to the right real quick. Turn... Turn real fast, if you would, to Psalm, Psalm 62. In fact, we sang, uh, a psalm that we sang this morning, is ta- a lot of the lyrics are taken from Psalm 62. It's on page 494, Psalm 62, verse 9. In fact, let's just start in verse 8, because it's such a beautiful, a, this is a beautiful psalm. Again, it's, a, it's the psalm of, of refuge as well. Uh, you, can, you can see the words, uh, the, the, the language of refuge in verses 1 and 2. Truly my soul finds a rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly he is my rock. There you go, right? My salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. These beautiful words, right, of confidence. Verse 8 says, trust in him. When? At all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him. Isn't that beautiful? That's what we did just earlier, right? I led you. In, in various prompts of prayer and saying, what, what are the things you do? You list all those things that are worrying you, burdening you, and what? Just cast them upon him. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. And listen now, look at verse 9. Look at this portrayal of humanity, this description. Surely the lowborn are but a breath. Isn't that interesting? The highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. Isn't that amazing? You're saying there's a, there's a sense of inconsequentiality that we are so ephemeral, so passing, that for, for all of our technology, for all of our knowledge, for all that we have, that the humanity is actually very, very weak, very frail. So that's the first thing. The theology of refuge is real, 
about, about humanity and all our weakness and all our vulnerability. In fact, a theology of refuge just sort of sweeps away all illusions of autonomy. Like, I'm on my own, look at me go. It's sort of like the, the high schooler or the, or the high school graduate or college graduate, they, 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 they finish graduating, they think, oh, I'm on my own. And then they realize what? Oh no, I'm on my own, <laughs> right? It's like, oh man, it's just me. This is it, this is it. Where am I gonna find the wisdom to know the way? Where am I gonna find support, encouragement? I have no idea what I'm doing. In fact, today more than ever, we see it in junior high, high school, college age persons, their levels of anxiety, levels of depression are higher than ever. Because hey, you figured out, you, you do this. It's all on you, you be free to do whatever you want. So a theology of refuge speaks first of a vulnerable humanity. Second, it speaks of an overwhelming threat. It speaks of our world as a place of overwhelming threats. A theology of refuge is very candid about the fact that we live in a world where there are forces at play that are adversarial, that oppose us, or are just indifferent to us. I can remember as a kid, this is uh, silly, I, I grew up in Montana, and uh, you know, landlocked Montana, we were rare, very rarely were we around any sort of you know, lake or whatever, at least we just didn't go to lakes and stuff very much. I can remember the first time that we took this big family vacation and we went down to California. And I can remember as a kid, five, four, five, six years old, making sandcastles, and I can remember trying to build something and every once in a while, the water would come up and just sweep the whole thing away. And I remember just didn't, you know, being you know, slow, a rather slow person. <laughs> it's not very smart. I remember several times making something and kept, you know, kept being washed away. At some point, I'm like, I, was, I got angry. I was like, I like kind of looked at the ocean. He's like, stop what you're doing. <laughs> and you realize how futile it is. There are forces at play that just, just sweep us away whenever, whenever. Without, without any control, without any sense of, of concern, they are indifferent, if not adversarial. So theology of refuge posed, uh, posits a vulnerable humanity, an overwhelming threat, and then are you ready for this? An impregnable fortress. An impregnable fortress. The theology of refuge, these psalms claim, they have the audacity to claim that as great or as formidable as the threats may be, listen to this, as formidable as the, as the threats may be, they are not final. Okay, they're not final. They don't, they won't have the last word. Let's look at our, let's look at our, and let's look at our, uh, our, our text this morning. So I'll turn back to Psalm 46. Again, it's a psalm of tremendous confidence. Look at verse 1. So let's, we're going kind to of outline it this way. We can say, let's kind of use this uh, sort of rubric, if we will, to, uh, to outline, uh, to outline our, uh, our psalm this morning. First, the first four verses say that, he give, that God gives safety in a world that's very scary. Got that? Look at verses 1 through 4. God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. Now this word, the very opening word God is, is a fairly uh, generic word for God, but it's, the, it's actually the, the plural 
for the word God. You think, wait a minute, plural? Why would it be plural like gods? It's just God. Well, in Hebrew, you have a plural that actually is not a plural of number, but a plural of what's called intensity. Right? It's a way of saying not so much that there's multiple one, but sort of uh, there's, there's a lot of it, if you will. For example, if, uh, when I, sometimes when, I, when, the, when my daughters come home from school, I'll say, do you have a lot of homework? And they will say, Dad, I've got lots of homework. And what are they saying? What's the difference? I say a lot of homework. They say lots of homework. They're, they're actually using that word plural, lots, in a way of saying intensity. It's not about their there's like specific lots of them. But here the picture of God is a God in all his intensity, in all his authority, in all his power. And this word God actually is found in several different places throughout, throughout, uh, throughout the psalm from verse 1, verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 11. It's beautiful. That's where he says, uh, I'm sorry, um, verse... Yeah, verse 10, I apologize. Verse 10, he, he says, that is, God says, be still and know that I am God. That I am the final authority. I will have, be still and know that I will have the final say. I will have the last word. Be still and know that I am in charge. And so again, going back to verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble and times of distress. Verse 2, now verse 2 gets at the heart, I think, of what is true Christianity. Verse 2, therefore we will not fear, just full stop, the essence of salvation right here, right now, is freedom from fear. Have you ever been in a situation where you were afraid only to realize that you didn't need to be? You ever been there? I can remember, again, this is going back to, uh, to Sarah and I when we were living in Florida. And I may have shared this story before. I always forget what stories I share. But uh, we were living in Florida. I was in the military at the time. And we would go. We were going to the beach. this beautiful Emerald Coast. And uh, again, landlocked Montana boy. And uh, we were, I was swimming out in the Gulf of Mexico by myself. And I was swimming kind of straight out just to sort of just explore and look around. And I remember getting pretty tired. And uh, I was thinking, well, you know, what am I doing out this far? This is really stupid, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm probably 22, 23 at the time, so I'm invulnerable, right? And, uh, and I, I get out a distance uh, in such a way as I just suddenly get really tired. My arms are hurting, and I, and I get worried that, man, what, am, what, have I, what have I just done? And I start to turn around, and I start to swim a little bit, and, uh, and then I think, I just have to rest somehow. And I, I wonder how deep the water is. I'm thinking, I'm probably in 20 feet of water or something like that. And, uh, and just out of sheer exhaustion, I just kind of stopped swimming, and I, my legs came down. And when my legs came down, just you know, as I started to, 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 to try to tread water, and as my, as, my, as my foot came down, my leg came down, I stubbed my toe on, on, the, on, the, on, the, you know, on the, the sand. So here I am, like, thinking, ah, you know, I'm going to die. You know, this is it for me, right? And I'm in, like, three or four feet of water. <laughs> and I remember kind of getting up, kind of like, 
like, you know, like, hey, I'm cool, like nothing, you know what I mean? Like, I knew I was in this, this shallow water, you know, like trying to like, sort of save face. And I don't think anyone saw me, I don't know, but I must have looked a complete idiot, right? Because I'm thinking, I'm going to die, this is it. Not only am I not realizing that I'm in three feet of water, that I didn't, all my fears were just, were just pointless. What if, what if we don't need to be afraid? Think about that. Think of the things that you are scared of in your life. What if you don't need to fear them? What if God could be that refuge for you, that strength for you? And it's not that no those things go away. They're there. Death is there. Financial concern is there. All those things are real things. It's not you just, this isn't about sticking your head in the sand. It's about recognizing one who is greater than our fears, one who has acted in ways that address our fear, one who has provided for us in the midst of our fears. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And then he says, fear when? Look at verse 2. The NIV translates though. In fact, most, things, most uh, translations translate though. And that's, it's, it's fair, but it's probably better to say, therefore we will not fear when, when the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. The psalmist, what, he's, what the psalmist is doing here is uh, picturing a worst case scenario. Imagine if everything just comes unglued. Imagine the creation itself just comes apart. And it's, it's, this, it's this a picture of sort of someone pulling the plug on nature and everything just sort of goes off kilter and just falls apart. And, he's, and the psalmist is saying, as bad as it could possibly get, in the scariest of situations, in the scariest of scenarios, he gives us safety. Isn't that amazing? What an amazing idea. What an amazing life to live. That you could be free from fear. Because you know, you know this God. You know how he is powerful. You know his provision and his power. This, uh, this, this imagery here in verse 2 and 3 is very typical. In fact, we, we saw it in our call to worship. This idea of waters, of, of, of forces of chaos far beyond our our reckoning far beyond our ability to, to in any way counter or control, that the psalmist recognizes that we live in a world where there are forces at play that are way bigger. And says, even, the, even, though, we, we even, even though those are there, we don't need to be afraid. So first, his first point is for his first four, uh, three or four verses here. It's pretty simple. He's, again, he's saying he gives safety in a world that's scary. Now, where does he, where is the safety found? Where does it come from? Well, he answers that in verses 5 through 7. It's so beautiful. Verse, look, look, I'm sorry, verses, beginning in verse 4, excuse me. There is a river, I think I numbered my verses here according to the Hebrew, not the, not the English here, so I'll, I'll apologize here, try to make this, uh, make this not as confusing. Verse 4 says, that, shifts gears. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Did you see that word help? 
We saw that already, looking back in verse 1. God is a refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. So where is this help found? Where is this refuge found? Where is this safety offered from a world that's scary? That safety is found in his city. In his city. Okay, again, so God, God grants safety in a world that's scary, and he grants that safety in his city. It's a beautiful description here. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kings fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. When the city that he describes here is beautiful. The idea here is that what makes the city so uh, spectacular, so, um, so it's a fortress, is that God is present within her. And of course, in the Old Testament, that would have been the, the city of Jerusalem. Okay? As we get, and then that's why? Because of God's presence. Again, he emphasizes again again. Look at verse 5. God is within her. God will help her. Uh, verse 7, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This notion of presence, that because God is in her, she is this impregnable fortress, this stronghold. And of course, today, how would we think about that? We wouldn't think of a city. What would we think of? Where do we find God's presence? Well, obviously, in the person of Jesus. Do you remember in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And of course, he's speaking of himself, that he is the very presence of God. And of course, today in the New Testament, we think of God's presence as among the people of God. Here, we as the church are the place of refuge. That we, that God's presence dwells among us and that we can be a refuge from the storms of life. Let me just give one example, a very practical example. Turn with me to the New Testament here, to to the, to the, uh, the Gospel of Mark. Let's take a very uh, practical example of financial fear. How many of you worry about money? You worry about you worry about uh, you know finances. This, I use this example again. This is Mark. I'll turn turn to Mark chapter ten. This is on page uh, 860, uh, uh, 868 of your pew Bible. 868, 869. Yeah, let's go ahead and chapter, Mark chapter 10. Jesus has been talking to a rich man, and he, uh, he, he, he implores the rich man to sell everything he has and give it to the poor. And then the rich man refuses and, 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 walk, and walks away uh, sad. And look at look on page 869 on verse, verse 28. Then Peter spoke up. This is verse 28. We have left everything to follow you. It's quite a statement, right? It's speaking of, how, of the financial cost. Listen to this promise that, that Jesus gives. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied... No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present 
age. Homes, brothers and sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, if you follow me, and it costs you your entire family support structure, it costs you your whole social security network, your whole ancient 401k, that's what he's saying. Because you leave me, and your, your family is, is disgraced. Your family is, wants nothing to do with you. And all your financial backing, all your financial security is gone. He said, you will find, what does he say? What a promise. You will receive a hundred times as much in this present age. How is that going to happen? Is this sort of a health and wealth gospel? What's he saying? Where are you going to find those, those sisters and brothers and mothers and homes and land? The church. That's what the church is supposed to be. This family that sticks together, that is willing to give, is willing to be generous and support. And so you enter into this, this real-time, real-place, people-of-God location right here in the local church, and you know that, you may, you, that yeah, I'm going to work as much as I can. I'm going to be as faithful as I can at work, but we're in uncertain times, and I have financial fears, and you can take those fears and talk to the deacons. Talk to the leadership and say, hey, I'm hurting money-wise. I'm doing all I can to support my family. And I'll tell you what, the deacons would be so glad to help. So glad to help in any way we can. We as a church, in a dignifying, loving way, would come alongside you. There's no way that we would let you somehow be in a, in a place of financial concern on your own. That's crazy. But, this, but Mark's, what Jesus says here in Mark is also convicting. It's challenging, isn't it? Are we being that family? Are we really that tight? Do we know how others are doing financially? Hey, how are things going? How's, this, how's 2021 been for you? Has it been tight? How are you guys doing? Do we know if there's financial need? I mean, in a family this size, in a, in a group this size, there's going to be people here who are hurting. There's going to be people who are not only hurting, but some who've gotten themselves in a financial struggle, in trial, in debt. And some of that may be their own, their own fault, but some of it's just life is hard. Life is confusing. You make bad decisions. You just didn't realize what had happened. Now you're in debt. The church is here for that. So I use this example because it's just a very practical, simple one, that this place really is to be a life-giving refuge. It's God's means of delivering, of providing a fortress Safety, so you don't have to fear. You go to bed at night, lay your head in the pillow and say, you know what, good shepherd's there. There are people who love me and care for me. They're not going to let anything happen to me and my family. Do you believe that? It's beautiful. So again, God is saying that he is a source of safety. So beautiful. He gives safety in a world that's scary. And where does he do it? He does it in his city. That is among the people of God. He gives, he gives safety for his city. And listen to this. For he's at work in history. Look at verse, turn back to Psalm, Psalm 46 here. <clears throat> Psalm 46, these next few verses here. It's so beautiful how he speaks so dramatically of his presence, his, his work in history. Verse 8, come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations that he has brought on the earth. 
He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. This is a very dramatic way of saying that God is Lord over the, the, the most catastrophic events in history. That he can bring desolation, he can bring peace, he can, he can guide the, the, the course of world history in a way that we can't begin to begin to imitate. He's saying, I really am present, I really am in charge. Just let me just give you one illustration of that. This past week I was reading a, this is, this is me, nerd, I was reading a, a biography of Herod the Great. Uh, if you remember, Herod the Great was the, was the king, the, the Roman client king in charge of Judea when Jesus was born. In fact, it's the same Herod who orders the, the, the murder of all the, the, the little, little babies, the children, all the boys are age two and under. This is Herod the Great. He was known to history as Herod the Great. And the reason he's known as Herod the Great is because he was truly an incredible leader in so many ways. The guy was brilliant at building. I mean, the guy built all, in fact, he built, uh, well, he rebuilt or renovated in a massive way the, the Jerusalem temple. So the very temple where Jesus worshipped, what came to be known in the ancient world as one of the great wonders, precisely because all of the money, in fact, Herod the Great actually funded the whole thing himself. How's that? Not only that, but he went over to you know, the west coast of the Mediterranean in a place that was pretty much a desert and said, I know, let's build a city here and let's create a harbor. And he created, through some of the latest technology, he created this huge harbor that was a, a deep sea harbor. These ships were able to come in and it actually changed um, tra the trade routes of the entire Mediterranean for the next three or four centuries. The guy was amazing. I mean, incredibly competent, incredibly capable. Not only was he an amazing builder, but he was also incredibly, as we know from the Bible, brutal. But the very end, my point is, at the very end of this biography, we, the, 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 the author, has this, he starts to list all these things, all, all, all of Herod the Great's accomplishments. And then the very end notes how it was that in the midst of his reign, underneath his own nose, came one of the most unexpected events or phenomena that changed all of history. And what's he talking about? <laughs> right? He's talking about Jesus, or a peasant. And he says, yeah, this happened under his watch. And it was the most unexpected, greatest thing that, I mean, in terms of most world-shaking event that ever happened. So you can have Herod the Greats who are brutal and hostile and all men are doing all their thing all the time. And God is working his purposes. He's having his way. He's bringing peace. He's working through and often in spite of the kings of this world and the powers that be. It's an amazing thing. And it sets us up beautifully for the Advent season. Uh, next Sunday is the beginning of the first, is the first Sunday of Advent. The sermon series will be going through Luke 1 and 2. The series is called, listen to this, is called How Silently the Wondrous Gift is Given. How silently. See, God doesn't have to be a big deal. He doesn't have to be on the news. He doesn't have to make CNN or Fox News or whatever. He doesn't have to, he just, he's doing his thing. And he always gets his way. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. 
Therefore, we will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. And this week, I would love for you to th- rethink your fears, rethink your anxieties. The, the, the psalm here isn't asking us to just sort of abstractly give our fears to him and just, just wait. He's saying, take your fears to the people of God, to the city of God, to the leadership. We would love to hear and pray for you, to pray with you, to to offer real, practical, concrete, hands-on, roll-up-your-sleeves support. There's no reason to be anxious and fearful alone. We're a family. We really are. We would love to walk with you in those situations. Let me close with this. Turn to the right. Turn to Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 26 is on page 854. 854, Jesus, is, uh, there, Jesus and disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, Jesus is uh, arrested. Judas is one of the 12. And he leads the, uh, the, the soldiers from the, the chief priests uh, to find Jesus in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, of course, he greets uh, Jesus and, and kisses him. And... Uh, Look in, we'll start in verse 50. It says, Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. He's speaking to, uh, to uh, Judas. He says, then the men stopped, stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Verse 52, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Now listen to this. Now you, we know who this is. This is Peter, right? He, he draws his sword. He cuts off the ear of the servant of the high, of the high priest. And, and in that moment, Peter's thinking everything's going wrong. What a mess. This is not going to happen. He feels small. He feels vulnerable. He feels like this is a disaster. And Jesus stops and says, listen, settle down. Put your sword back in its place. Let's go to verse 53. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? In this seeming moment of fragility, in this seeming moment of, of being alone and weak, like everything's going wrong, Jesus says, Peter, everything is going to plan according to plan. Don't you know that I could, I could call my father just like this? Just like this, and he would, he would come to my aid. It doesn't seem like it. I know everything feels incredibly anticlimactic right now. <laughs> it feels like everything is going wrong, but look at what he says next, verse 54. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus believed that down to the details of our life, down to the very hair of our head that God knows, has numbered those hairs, has measured our days, is present in all of the details of life. He's there. For so the scriptures have said. 
Will you this morning, will we this morning find a refuge in a God who is ever present to help us? A God who is sovereign over the nations of the world. Will we surrender to him? Will we be still and know with such freedom and such peace that he is God? Let's pray together.